0: Welcome to the Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasno. So a brief moment to announce a slightly different approach to the podcast. First off, I want to express my profound appreciation to everyone who has supported this podcast, our diligent Commune team, all of the brilliant teachers and authors, the mission-driven brands who have provided financial support, and most of all, you, all of the listeners who have helped turn this modest endeavor into a powerful platform for ideas. In my writings and exhortations, I have been a vociferous critic of the ad revenue model, which has misaligned incentives in journalism. And while Commune's brand partners have always been in alignment with our message of well-being and sustainability, I want to try to produce this show without any advertisement. Quite simply, I think it's a better experience without ads. Now, this doesn't change the reality that there are hard costs associated with the production of this show. And moreover, there is significant time expenditure. I am committed to helping build a world where well-being can flourish. And I have to allocate my time accordingly in the pursuit of this mission. I never want anyone's financial wherewithal to stand between them and the ability to glean wisdom from the guests on this show or my commusings. So, this podcast will remain free to anyone who is interested in listening to it. That being said, if you have the financial ability to support our efforts, I would be grateful if you headed over to onecommune.com support. You can contribute a few bucks or join Commune membership and get unlimited access to all of our courses. Thank you, and it's an honor to do this work. So many of you may receive my weekly Sunday Comusings article where I address a breadth of issues from the spiritual to the political. And on occasion, I will also record an audio version of these articles and release it as a bonus episode. Today's episode is derived from my article about contracting coronavirus and how we must move outside of the political invective in order to address the pandemic. If you're interested in receiving my weekly article, sign up at onecommune.com. And if you're not totally sick of me, you can follow me on Instagram at Jeff Krasnow. So without further ado, here's this week's commusing entitled The Rona. The Rona. In mid-February 2020, my friend Russell and I attended a conference called the Conscious Life Expo. The twisted irony of the name will whistle out the kettle in a moment. The event was hosted at the LAX Hilton, a nondescript concrete behemoth beside the Los Angeles airport. Behind the banal facade, like a technicolor pearl hidden in an oyster, an animated psychedelia awaited. As we entered through the sliding glass, the scene was like a New Age rendition of the Star Wars Cantina Bar. Hundreds of henna tattooed droids and crystal necklaced wookies sipped Starbucks dark roast while lathering on essential oils. Dreadlocked hippies twirled to the wails of Wahe Guru in front of a makeshift stage in the marble lobby. Russell is tall and, candidly, famous so we donned our hoods like two Jawas and surreptitiously slinked around the periphery of the mayhem. We slithered up the stairs and into the entrails of the marketplace as if performing a spiritual colonoscopy of the conference center. The bazaar was sardined with every sort of mystic sage and seeker hawking their wares, dream catchers and didgeridoos, Palo Santo and hemp leggings, books on finding yourself, and others on losing yourself. Apparently, black tourmaline sends energy down through the root chakra and out the earth star chakra beneath your feet. Who knew? The jammed hallways, the dropped cottage cheese ceiling, and Russell's height coalesced into a panic inducing claustrophobia like we were on Malkovich's seventh and a half floor. Finally, we were squirted into the world's most diminutive conference room, where Russell was booked to speak. People swarmed in. Extra chairs were filled as quickly as they were added. A bejeweled lady with purple hair snuggled in next to me and produced not one, but two small parakeets from her satchel that balanced on each shoulder. I'm not kidding you. In a Hilton." As people waited for Russell, it felt like a plane taxiing out the runway, waiting for liftoff. Attendees began coughing like an orchestra tuning up before the concert. High-pitched short hacks coming from the piccolo, low-resonant croaks from the bassoon. A cosmic pestilence filled the air like a fog machine. Russell dazzled, as per usual, gave me a look and out of the Petri dish we squiggled. It was as if the expo sneezed and propelled us like droplets out the mouth of the sliding doors and back into dull care. I'd never been happier to see a banker in a pinstripe suit hailing an Uber. Knackered, I trudged home and went immediately to sleep. I woke up the next day, a Sunday, and felt off. My throat was scratchy and my chest was tight My condition deteriorated over the course of the day. By Monday, I was running 102 and hacking uncontrollably. My body ached like I'd run a marathon. The fatigue was so profound I could only relate it to the feeling I had in the aftermath of the many flights I took from Tokyo to New York. I remained in this acute state of illness for two weeks. Through the entirety of March and April, as the family sheltered in place, these symptoms intermittently recurred, albeit less intensely. I'd attempt to take a walk only to turn around a hundred yards out in a clammy sweat and melt back into the puddle of my sheets. Daddy had what little Micah calls the Rona. I'm not exactly Jeff the Rock Krasno, but I am healthy. I exercise daily and I eat well. I have none of the comorbidities associated with severe COVID-19 contraction. Despite the propellers of Marine One whirring outside my window, I opted for self-treatment over airlift. Of course, we knew little about this menace in the early spring, so I followed my instincts. I alkalized my body, gargling and drinking an unimaginable amount of apple cider vinegar. I built up my microbiome with probiotic sea plankton and coconut yogurt kefir. I sweatitated in the sauna by pouring eucalyptus water on the searing rocks until the air was stoked to 190 degrees and then breathing deeply to the guidance of Muji, the Jamaican spiritual teacher. I took lipospheric vitamin C and vitamin D. I ate clean, didn't drink alcohol, severely limited my caffeine, and got outside when I felt up to it. I slowly crawled my way back into well-being, though my children claim I remain mentally deranged. My intention is not to be cheeky, though I suppose the world might benefit from some levity. A truck backed into my immune system and dumped a viral load big enough to mulch a football pitch. I was fortunate to be able to quarantine and have the resources to self-administer myriad, if cockamamie, treatments. Frontline workers, healthcare professionals, delivery drivers, grocery clerks, scientists, meat packers, government officials, and many others could not shelter in place. Of those who have gotten sick, many do not have adequate health care or the resources to self-treat, as I did. We owe them a great debt. And to the best estimates, 37 million people have been diagnosed with this disease, and over 1 million people have died, including parents of good friends. If you can remember back to March, and I don't blame you if you cannot given the successive deluge of world events, you'll recall how little we knew about the virus. Lying on my bed in my seventh sweat-soaked shirt of the day, my phone abuzz with sensationalism, I had no choice but to lean deeply into my meditation practice or go mad. For two hours a day, I drifted into the emptiness and I'm not confident I have completely returned from the void. There appears to be some sort of sacred latency between the happenings of things and my responses to them. These essays have emerged from this uninhabited space as honest attempts to better understand the world more from the perspective of a witness than a participant. Standing behind everything that separates us Beneath the various identity costumes we wear, we share a common need for purpose, belonging, and well-being. This coronavirus is a barrier between us and our personal and collective health, our ability to connect with those we love and earn a living to support our families. Another distant memory is the halcyon moment when we imagined that a global pandemic might unite us, envisioning the virus as blind to race, class, and creed. Yet viable solutions to solving the greatest challenge of our last hundred years have been shrouded in a thick political marine layer. And while it's difficult to navigate true north in a fog, still, we're all piloting theories. And it doesn't help that our wacky cousin and other more nefarious characters are hurling misinformation at us like rotten tomatoes on Facebook. We are doom-scrolling, awash in memes and YouTube videos, positing this theory and that. Uncertainty is not the friend of the conceptual mind. When the mind cannot know, it will often default to fear over love, to reactivity over responsiveness. How many of us have been living in this exhausted, anxious, agitated, cortisol-fueled state, desperately trying to know the unknowable? The invective of politics is so triggering that we lose our capacity for compassion and discernment. It's preposterous that our political identities have anything to do with an issue as trivial as mask-wearing. Yeah, I've read about 20 studies with varying conclusions. But forget this disease even exists for a moment and return to a saner time. When I was a boy, any time I coughed or sneezed, my mom told me to cover my mouth. This was a moral lesson. I shouldn't spread my germs because I value the health of the people around me. Love thy neighbor, the golden rule. When we step back from the short-fused political polemic We often find a simpler moral intuition to guide us. We all just need some time to catch our breath. Haste and science make cranky bedfellows, yet politics is stomping its feet for answers now. And in this demand, science falters and equivocates further undermining confidence in itself. Vacillations about the nature of COVID's transmissibility, for example, have confounded and confused. Good science, like good food, wine, yoga, piano playing, athleticism, or art, takes time and requires patience. And good science, like those other endeavors, can bring us together. It is in togetherness, in scaled and flexible cooperation that we achieve the great projects of humanity. As fraught as this moment is, it is also pregnant with opportunity. If we could step back from the political precipice and onto the perennial sturdiness of morality and reason, if we could commune around a global collective effort to tame the virus, we could write a new world story. This virus appears to be highly transmissible with a relatively low fatality rate. It more severely impacts the elderly and those with comorbidities. This is a far more insidious combination than immediately apparent. Higher fatality rates, for instance, might actually staunch the spread as the virus would incapacitate or kill its hosts with greater frequency and justify more drastic lockdown measures. But as it is, asymptomatic carriers can bop around and bestow the illness upon the more vulnerable. This is where an ethical and moral dilemma surfaces. Many of us have intellectually tangled with the concept of herd immunity, which propagates the idea that we entirely reopen our economies, and in short order, 60-70% to of the population will have the antibodies, and the disease will wither. Of course, we don't know how close to these percentages we currently are. Knowing, however, that the illness is far more fatal among people with heart disease, obesity, diabetes, and other chronic diseases, and that these conditions are highly correlated across underprivileged socioeconomic and, by extension, racial groups, we must honestly face this question. Is it ethical to sacrifice lives of our disadvantaged and elderly in the pursuit of herd immunity? If so, how many? The virus itself does not discriminate, yet it shines a light onto where humans have. There may be another way, a middle path. In short term, we may see significant spikes of cases during the winter in the Northern Hemisphere, but together, we can rally around a number of measures to mitigate spread and fatalities, We can cautiously open sections of the economy and dance in and dance out. We can practice common-sense public health guidelines, which do not have to be draconian or politicized. Limit large gatherings, as 80% of the cases come from 10% of the people. Practice personal hygiene. Bolster immune systems through public health initiatives. Institute mass testing with rapid-response home tests. And where there are outbreak clusters, we tamp down and contact trace. There is also reason for optimism on numerous antiviral fronts. A number of therapeutics, including monoclonal antibodies, (mAbs), which the president received, and convalescent plasma therapy, CPT, are promising treatments. CPT uses blood plasma taken from people who have recovered from COVID-19, which contains antibodies that can recognize and neutralize SARS-CoV-2, as well as other components that may contribute to an immune response. These therapies can be used prophylactically within small circles as ring vaccination. For example, if someone within a family or social group contracts the disease, MABS can be administered to other members within the group. These community measures are most likely bridges to a widely distributed vaccine. Currently, there is tremendous public skepticism around a COVID vaccine, with a majority of Americans claiming they would not take it. Much of that skepticism is derived from, again, political pressure that is forcing vaccine developers and the FDA to rush a product to market. The looming election plays a prominent role in the current administration's Operation Warp Speed initiative. Some urgency is clearly productive, and there appears to be significant progress among numerous drug makers. Still, large-scale peer-reviewed clinical trials must run their course. The outcomes need to prove beyond any doubt that a vaccine is completely safe. Recently, nine prominent drug makers pledged that they will not submit vaccine candidates for FDA review until their safety and efficacy is shown in large clinical trials. The move is intended to bolster public confidence amid the rush to make a COVID-19 vaccine widely available, and counter fears of political pressure to deliver a vaccine before the November presidential election. Skeptics with legitimate concerns will still exist, but if there is a safe vaccine available in the summer of 2021, people may slowly shift their attitudes if it means they can see their family and friends, go back to work, travel, and go to restaurants. Many may decide to not take the vaccine, but if approximately 70% do elect to accept it, then we may achieve herd immunity. This is just a paltry plan from a bloke tapping keys in a guest house, but we do need some blueprint. Otherwise, we're back at that Hilton Expo, waiting for two ravens to fly past a harvest moon while a crystal refracts the light from the iris of a coyote. We can eradicate the virus, And in doing so, we can accomplish something greater. We can reestablish faith in the best part of the institutions that eliminated smallpox and put a man on the moon. We can eschew odious politics and rally the mighty infrastructure of our government to serve the people. We can move our collective conscious out of the amygdala, the center of fear, and into the prefrontal cortex, where sound judgment is reasoned. We can summon our better angels and grant ourselves and each other some grace, we can honor those who have passed by leveraging this hideous time into a more peaceable and global communion.